5, 26 through chapter 6, 5. Let us not become conceited, competing against one another, envying one another. My friends, if anyone is detected in transgression, you who have received the Spirit should restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Take care that you yourselves are not tempted. Bear one another's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. For if those who are nothing think they are something, they deceive themselves. All must test their own work. Then that work, rather than a neighbor's work, will become a source of pride. For all must carry their own loads. Let's bow our heads together in prayer. Let's pray. God, we thank you first and foremost this morning as we come before your word. We thank you for Christy and for the transformation you're bringing in her life and for hope. And we thank you for her witness to all of us, the courage and faith that she has that uh, inspires us to follow in her footsteps. Thank you for sending her to be our teacher this morning. And we pray as we come before your word today that you will send your Holy Spirit to speak to us, to illuminate the text in our hearing, and that the words of my mouth and that all of the reflections in each of our hearts will be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, will bring you glory. O Lord, you are our strength and our redeemer. Amen. Last week, we uh, began a three-week series of messages, a a short, brief little series called 10,000 Reasons. It's November, and November is a time when we give thanks. We think about what we're grateful for in our own lives, in our families, our friends, our workplace. And when it comes to our life together as Mount Olympus Presbyterian Church, there are at least 10,000 reasons to be grateful. Um, We're taking these three weeks to highlight three um, areas of gratitude that Bree and I would like to just reflect on, um, areas of strength that we've noticed in the life of our congregation. Um, And and as we do that, we want to celebrate God's work in our church by lifting up these three values and encouraging us to continue moving in that direction, leaning into these values. And these are the values um, that we're looking at, lifelong learning, meaningful relationships, and calling and vocation. Last week, Bree talked about lifelong learning, that we are not a congregation who checks our brains at the door when we come here. Uh, We're not a congregation who puts our questions on the shelf, but we are a congregation who is actively in pursuit of the truth. We know that the truth prevails, and so we don't have to be afraid of pursuing it. Um, And so we seek to not only accept Christ into our hearts and into our lives, but like Augustine, we, uh, we, we say yes to faith and spend the rest of our lives trying to understand what it is that we have said yes to, faith seeking understanding. We're beggars who are trying to show other beggars where to find bread. And, and so we commit to lifelong learning because we seek a humble posture in the world um, that may not claim to have all the answers, though we claim to follow the one who does, and we are compelled by the search for truth. 
This week we're talking about meaningful relationships. We're not just a collection of individuals who happen to be sitting next to each other in this room, although we are that, um, but we are uh, Christ as Christ lives in us. Christ lives independently in each one of us, but the Bible also says that God is love, and love can't exist without a subject and an object, so that means that Christ is also the love that exists between people. Um, and so we are meant to grow in our relationships with one another. So I want to define this value uh, for the purpose of our context and message today like this. Meaningful relationships is the practice of forging deep friendships through solidarity and vulnerability. The practice of forging deep friendships through solidarity and vulnerability. Back in 2019, this church, Mount Olympus, uh, conducted a, a months-long mission study where they contracted a church uh, consultant to survey the congregation, evaluate the ministries of the church, and help the church to discern who we are and where we're going. Every Presbyterian church in our denomination does this when they turn over uh, senior leadership. And so I wasn't here at that time. They were in transition between pastors. And I want to read you a portion of that summary because it's coming up in, in this series. Um, every church, this is executive summary, every church exists its patterns in its life that contain strengths and weaknesses. Well, that's good to know. We're not perfect. Okay. Your church has potential strengths related to inclusiveness and advocacy. Um, we heard some of the, the advocacy partnership from Christy's amazing story this morning. Potential weaknesses include a tendency to intellectualize every issue. I find that humorous. Um, and difficulty in establishing identity and vision. And the identity and vision is part of what we're working on in this series. Um, if you go to the next slide, uh, you can see the top goals. These are the top four goals articulated by the church, by the congregation in that survey. And the highest goal in 2019 was to create more opportunities for people to form meaningful relationships. Small groups, nurtured friendships, shared meals, etc. I was at one of the dinners for eight last night, um, and we've had over 90 people sign up for the dinners for, for eight. And this is something we do twice a year, and that's part of it is uh, the nurturing of friendships. Um, some have said that, well, this was 2019, then we had a pandemic. The pandemic changed everything. None of this is relevant anymore. And I would be hard-pressed to suggest that uh, meaningful relationships has become less relevant post-pandemic than before the pandemic. So I think these, these findings are even more significant for us today um, than before the pandemic. Um, and so when we think about our world today, um, the way we communicate with one another and the relationships that we have, I wonder if this notion of friendship, what is a friend? 
has become way too complicated. Um, this could be like old fuddy-duddy language coming from me because I'm thinking about when I was a kid, right? When I was a kid, back when I was a kid, um, we didn't have cell phones and things like that. And how did you know what a friend, who your friends were? Well, for me, I had all their phone numbers memorized. Uh, raise your hand if you had any of your friends' phone numbers memorized when you were a kid. And so my like eight or 10 or 12 of my closest friends, we all had each other's numbers memorized. And in fact, I still have some of their no numbers memorized. Um, and that's how we kind of knew, you know, his close friend, you memorize their numbers. Now the word friend uh, takes on a different kind of meaning. And it leads to some questions. When you look at your social media friends, and can you look at that list and name two things about them without looking at any of their posts? So look through your Facebook friends. How many of those people can you name two things without looking at any of their posts? Could you say where they're from or how you met? Is your social network friends, followers, or fans? How many would stand with you in a time of crisis? How many would truly celebrate an accomplishment? How many would secretly celebrate if you failed? <laughs> so how is it that we are more connected than ever and yet feel more isolated in our world? Do we have everyone to text and no one to call? The late comedian Robin Williams once said, my greatest fear used to be being alone now it is being connected to people who make me feel lonely. That's worth sitting with for a minute. Do you think there might be a connection between our experience in the world, experience of isolation, being connected and loneliness, and the church's expressed desire to, um, to lift up meaningful relationships as a goal for our ministries? I don't think there's, I, I don't, uh, I think there is a connection. Um, so what, I want to talk about friendship for a few minutes as a spiritual discipline. Friendship as a spiritual discipline that we practice as Christ followers in a world that wants to settle for Twitter followers and Facebook friends. In the ancient world, you know, we don't normally think about friendship as a spiritual discipline. We think about prayer as a spiritual discipline, reading the Bible as a spiritual discipline, coming to worship, even going to serve. But rarely do we think about spiritual or friendship as a spiritual discipline. But the ancients understood that it was. Um, the ancients understood the Greeks had actually three words for relationships, and C.S. Lewis uses those when he talks about the four loves in the Bible, and they are as follows. Storge, these are family relationships. Um, eros, this is, these are romantic relationships, romantic love or the romantic bond. It's where we get our word for erotic. Uh, philia is the friend bond, and that's what we're looking at today. And then agape is God's unconditional love for us. And what the ancients knew was that the first two, storge and eros, kind of happen to you. But the third one you have to work at. You're born into storge, your family relationships. You fall in love and have romantic bond. But only 
philia do you have to, to work at? Um, and this was the most deliberate of, of the three. And so the ancient Greeks lifted it up as a high value. Um, there were many great books and literature written about it. There's Cicero even wrote a book called How to Be a Friend. Um, I haven't read it. Um, so, but I assume it's good because Cicero wrote it. Today, all, this notion of friendship, when it comes to like literature and the arts and things like that, it's, it's you don't find it. We, well, what makes the bestseller list is the eros relationships, not the philia relationships. And so when Paul and um, uh, Peter and other writers of the New Testament address their communities and their letters as dear friends, that might sound a little sentimental to us, like, oh, dear friends, dear friends. But to them, it was a really big deal. Um, it, 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 to them, it meant that the practice of friendship was central to being a follower of Jesus, and they were going to be intentional about that. And there were two great qualities of friendships, likely more, and this is not ex exhaustive, but authentic friendship that we see in this text, even though it doesn't have the word friendship in it, and these are friends practice solidarity and friends practice vulnerability. And I use the word practice because you can practice solidarity and then not practice solidarity. You can practice vulnerability and then you can harden up and shut down. And so it's about the practice. It's about the work and that's the way discipline works. So let's first talk about solidarity. A friend is someone who will be there for you uh, when you need them. Paul writes, bear one another's burdens and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. Well, what does it mean to bear someone's burden? Well, if someone has a 200-pound object on their back, how do you bear their burden? Well, you get close to them, and you let some of that weight slide onto your back. So you are literally taking on some of that person's burden. There's a cost to you involved. Um, I remember when I was a, a teenager, I was 16 years old, and I crashed my car. I totaled it um, on the 405 freeway in Irvine, California, late at night, um, being um, 16 years old and kind of reckless. There, was no, there were no, other, no injuries, um, no other vehicles involved in the accident, but my car was totaled. And I was so ashamed, so terrified, so embarrassed um, that I couldn't even get myself to call my parents. Um, instead, I called my friend and, and his mom. And my friend and his mom um, rushed 20 miles. They hopped in their car and came to the scene of the accident and met me, met me there. Um, I still don't know exactly why I didn't call my parents uh, first. I think I must have been in shock. I also don't remember how I called my friend because we didn't have cell phones in those days. I think the police officer must have had some kind of a phone that I used. At any rate, they came and they met me and then they talked to my parents, absorbed the shock, and then brought me home. And by that time, my parents were just grateful that I was alive and... and um, and so they, 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 bared, they bore my burden in that moment. Um, and uh, I'll never forget that. It was one example of a, of a moment of solidarity in friendship. 
Unfortunately, I have a collection of juicy stories from those days. Um, but uh, yeah, we all know what it's like to step in or to have a friend show up in a time of need. You know, this also, I think, really applies to caregivers. I know a lot of caregivers in our congregation who care for, for loved ones. And when you care for a loved one, you're bearing a burden. It's costly. And so we actually, there are ministries that provide care for caregivers because they need it too. Um, and, and even though some of those caregiver relationships are storge, right, they're family relationships, when you choose to provide care for one of your family members, you're acting, you're practicing philia, you're practicing being a friend to the one you love, to, to your um, uh, storge relationship. So I often think about um, and will say that my wife, Devin, we've been married for 20 years. We've been friends for 22 years and she's my best friend. Um, and that's likely because we have to bear each other's burdens all the time as part of what being married is. And we work on that. But this isn't true for, for every marriage. There was a New York Times article um, that was written a while back in the Sunday style section, and it was one of those articles that a preacher tucks away for a time like this. Um, the article was about a man who um, became less rich. So he had, um, it, he had $20 million, that was his net worth, and went through, fell on some hard times, and about six months later, he was only worth $8 million. Terrible tragedy, I know. The problem was his wife was still spending as if he was worth $20 million, but he couldn't get himself to tell her. And so it was one of those like, you know, um, ask a question to your, you know, advisor, your doctor, whatever, and they'll tell you how to, how to d deal with the situation. And the advisor said, well, man, you've just got to tell her that you don't have $20 million anymore. You only have $8 million. This isn't sustainable. It's just not going to work. You have to tell her. And he's like, I can't tell her because she'll leave me if I tell her. And he said, it doesn't matter. You have to tell her. You have no other choice. She might be his spouse, but she's not his friend. See, there's a friend who sticks closer than a brother or a sister or a mother or father or a spouse. For the spouse to be a friend, she has to say, we're in this together no matter what. Even if I have to trade in the McLaren for a BMW, I mean, I will go with you all the way. Solidarity, solidarity. The second quality of friendship is not only that friends practice solidarity, but friends also practice vulnerability. Friends practice vulnerability. And that's one of the challenges, right? We, we, and I'll get into that in a second. In this passage, we don't really see the full range of vulnerability and, and how that works. What we see is the fruit of a, of a relationship that's based on trust and vulnerability. Take a look at verse 1. Paul writes, my friends, within this community in Galatia, if anyone is detected in a transgression, you who have received the Spirit should restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Take care that you yourselves are not tempted. What is this describing? Well, this is describing 
Paul saying to the community that when someone is, is sort of trapped in something, you know, the word is sin, they're trapped in sin, go and, and help that person. What Paul is not saying is go and tell people what they did wrong all the time. Um, you see somebody doing something wrong, go and tell them about it. That is not what Paul is saying. But out of a relationship of vulnerability and trust, when there is someone within your community, in your close friendship circle, who is trapped in something harmful to themselves or to someone else. It could be an addiction. It could be a hatred. We just had an election, midterm election cycle. Maybe you know someone who just has complete disdain and they're trapped in bitterness toward people of the other party. There are a million examples of this. And so it first implies that there's a pattern. Um, there's a pattern here. It also implies that there's harm, and then thirdly, it implies that they can't get out of it by themselves. And so there are two things that Paul suggests that we do. And one is that we restore that person gently. The Greek word means to take a dislocated ligament and to put it back in its socket. Um, my same friend who came to the scene of the accident when I was 16, he and I would go surfing and snowboarding together a lot. And about half the times that we went, he would try to do some stunt and crash and throw his um, uh, shoulder out of his socket. And, and he would start screaming. And then he would have me lift up his arm, you know, or whatever, and and lock it back in and kind of like set it back in and um, and so he'd be screaming and I'd do that and then he would collapse and then in about a minute he would kind of start laughing and get up and say let's keep going <laughs> you know <laughs> there was only one way to get that shoulder back into its socket and it was by inflicting healing pain on this guy make it hurt and get it back in we all know what it's like um, to need that in our own lives, um, to, for someone to come up and, and, and help us to, to kind of wake us up sometimes. Friends do that, but gently and humbly in relationship of trust and solidarity. But watch yourself, Paul says, or you may be tempted. What does he mean by that? Well, it's as if to say don't ever, if you're going to... Um, express vulnerability or offer correction to someone. Don't ever do that from a place of superiority or distance. The kind, this kind of work needs to come from compassion and empathy, not judgment or self-righteousness. In her book, Atlas on the Heart, Brene Brown um, offers a really helpful image about the difference between sympathy and empathy. We're reading this book as a staff. Let's say somebody is stuck down in a mud hole. Sympathy stands on the outside and looks down into the hole and says, man, that really stinks that you're down there. I'm so sorry you're down in that hole. That's terrible. Man, I'm glad I'm not in that hole, but you're down in that hole. I'm really sorry about that. Empathy gets down in the hole with the person, making sure to hold on in this image to a tree root or something to get that person back out and to get back out. Um, the other person is called over-identification. That's when you just jump into the hole and you both die, right? So we, we, we don't really want that either. We're called to empathy, to solidarity, and to vulnerability. 
But there's a problem. This kind of friendship, this kind of meaningful relationship that we're called and meant to forge between one another as brothers and sisters in Christ is terrifying. It's terrifying for two reasons. One, my natural self is such that I'm, I'm afraid of vulnerability. I don't want to share something that I'm struggling with with you, and I don't want to call you out on something that I see you struggling with because in either case that could result in, in criticism and rejection against me. And I don't want that. I don't, I don't want that. I, I, I would rather just things be nice and neat and clean, right? We don't like the criticism. And secondly, because my natural self is selfish, I really don't want to practice solidarity. I, I'd rather you know, stay in bed when my friend gets in a car accident 20 miles away in the middle of the night. Thank you very much. I would not rather go uh, because we'd rather live for myself. In other, and so we're afraid of vulnerability and we sort of don't like um, the sacrifice of solidarity. The question is, how do we overcome this? How do we, where do we get the strength and the power to practice this discipline of forging meaningful relationships and deep friendships. I think the best place really and the only place to start and to end is with Jesus. That is where we draw strength. It's where we not only find the example of true friendship, but it's also where we get the power to face our temptation to be fickle and selfish. Paul writes, bear one another's burdens. Why? Because Christ bore our burden. We look at the cross of Jesus Christ. We gaze upon the suffering of the crucifix. And we see the culmination of solidarity. He took our wounds. He took our failures. He didn't stand at a distance and say, I'm sorry to be you. He got right down into the mud hole with us, carried our burden all the way to the cross. And then we see vulnerability, willingly beaten, mocked, spat on, stripped naked, nailed to a cross for the whole world to see and to laugh at. Why? Because he no longer calls you servants anymore. Because he, he sees you and me as his friends. And that's what friends do. Love lays down its life. And so we're invited to gaze upon the image of the crucified to soften our hearts towards one another, to reflect on the one who has been a friend to us. And even and most especially in our suffering. And this then softens us toward ourselves and towards all others. In a time of great connectedness and great loneliness, May we look to Jesus who is our friend and out of that wellspring of friendship, may we then discipline and practice the discipline of being friends to one another, being vulnerable and showing solidarity. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for sending Jesus to be not only our Savior, but also our friend. May we know that we are never alone and may we have the courage and the love to show up in solidarity and vulnerability for one another. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.